Amen. If I was to ask each person here to give an account of a particular event which we are all familiar with, I'm sure that there would be a great variety in how you would describe that event. I'm sure you would all have some of the main points that need to be said. You would have the overall thrust of the story or the event. But if you were to take someone else's sheet of paper and read what they have put down, I'm sure you would find that there are differences between how they have described that event. Indeed, if you just think of something that has happened in your life and you tell a story to someone and then perhaps a few minutes later or maybe the next day someone else comes along and they tell a similar story of that same event and yet you think to yourself, well, hold on a minute. That's not exactly how I told that story. They have left out this point and that point. And so you can see very clearly that while we can tell a story and get the main thrust, there might be slight differences with how we portray those events. And this is something that we see in the Word of God, especially in the Gospel accounts. Because while the overall thrust and the overall themes and the overall content of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all similar and they all portray the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet there is a difference with how they portray these events. One event might be present in one gospel and left out in another. One gospel might focus on a particular aspect of the Lord and another gospel focuses on something else. But the overall thrust, the overall theme is the same. Indeed, this is very obvious when you read the opening chapters of each of the Gospels. When you look at Matthew, he focuses upon the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ and then how the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would bear one conceived of the Holy Ghost. Then you go to Mark's account and he he does not deal with the birth, the historical birth of the Savior. Instead, he goes into the ministry and work of John the Baptist. Then you go to Luke's gospel and he does something different as well. He goes and he tells the events that lead up to the birth of Christ. With all that occurred in the life of Elizabeth and Mary and how they were told that they would be blessed of God and they would be ones who would be remembered for the children that they would bear. And so we see that in Matthew and Mark and Luke, they begin their gospel record with historical accounts. But when we come to the gospel according to John, he begins his gospel record in an entirely different fashion. This opening chapter, or rather I should say the opening portion of the opening chapter of John, the apostle John sets forth fundamental doctrine that is necessary to understand with regards to the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we see here uh, in the opening part of this chapter from verse 1 through to 14, a huge variety of facts that he tells us about the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, 
he speaks about the deity and the eternality of Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There we see him setting out the fundamental truth that Jesus Christ, the Word, was God. He is a divine being. Then he goes on in verse 3, not to speak about his deity or his eternality, but to speak of his creativity. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then in verse 12, he, he speaks of his ability, his ability to save. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. There's another wonderful facet of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come down to verse 14, he then brings into view the humanity of Christ. For having established that here is one who is divine, here is one who is powerful, here is one who is able to save, he sets forth the fundamental truth that Jesus Christ had a humanity that he took upon himself human nature. Let's look at that verse once again. It is the verse we are thinking upon this evening. John says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glo His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we have a tremendous verse of Scripture that sets before us the incarnation of Christ. The truth that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became flesh. Now there's many at this time of year and they would try to tell us, well, Jesus Christ, he was simply a good person. He was a man of good morals and he's one that we are to follow as an example. But that is where it stops. Well, here is a verse of God's holy and inspired word that tells us otherwise. Here is one who was God, who is God, who became man. And so as we consider this verse, I want you to think about the revelation of Christ to man. And let us consider, first of all, the manifestation of Christ. Because John opens this verse by saying, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Here John, he is focusing his thoughts upon the very fact that Jesus Christ was made manifest to man. He was manifest in the flesh. In other words, he appeared in the flesh. He was easily seen in the flesh as the Son of God. But John uses a, a very particular title in this verse and indeed in this opening passage of John chapter 1. And it is that title, The Word. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is known by many different titles. And this title, it is very instructive and tells us much about the person and the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. John first uses it in that opening verse of the chapter where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And so here we see the identification of a particular, of a specific person. Here is a person who is eternal. A person who is divine. A person who John says was with God and was God. A person distinct from the Father. And yet at the same time equal with the Father. Because Jesus Christ is one who is co-eternal, one who is co-existent, one who is consubstantial with the Father. He is God. Oh, great is the mystery of godliness. You know, it is hard for our human minds to comprehend these facts at times. That there is one Godhead and yet there are three distinct persons. But John in these opening verses does much to set forth this truth to us that here is one who is distinct and yet he is God at the same time. Well, this person is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why is he called the Word? Well, I just did say it's got much instruction for us. It tells us so much about what the Lord does. And indeed, John, he says some of these things in the opening verses of this chapter. Well, the word, it demonstrates the scope of his work. The Lord Jesus Christ created all things by his word. We see that in verse 3. All things were made by him. He is the creator of all things. These days, evolution is put forward as if it's fact. They forget to say that the real title is the evolutionary theory. But here we have fact. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And Jesus Christ is the one to whom this creation is attributed. And it's all by his word. And the word of God goes on to say that not only did Christ create all things by his word, but all things are upheld by the power of his word. You find that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Not only does he create all things by his word and uphold all things by his word, does he not also save by his word? The disciples were able to say, Oh, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. But the title, the word, that is given to Christ, it also conveys the truth that through Jesus Christ, God is revealed to man. That through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's will, God's being, God's person, the attributes of God, they are all revealed to man through him. Indeed, look at the final verse that we read earlier in verse 18 of this passage, where we read these words. No man hath seen God at any time, The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, he hath declared him. See, there is the work which Christ does. He shows us who God is, what God requires, what God is willing to do for sinful souls such as we. Oh, this person, the Word, was 
manifested and revealed to man through the incarnation. Because John says in verse 14, the word was made flesh. And this phrase, this terminology that he was made flesh, it has the thought that Jesus Christ, the eternal logos, the eternal word, he took to himself or he assumed to himself human nature. Now, it does not mean that he divested himself of divine properties and he was simply a man. No, Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is one who took to his divine nature a true human nature and a reasonable soul. He was made flesh. And this is a truth that is taught throughout Scripture. Hebrews 2 verse 16 says, He took on him the seed of Abraham. Philippians 2 verse 7 says he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ took to himself a human body. He took to himself a human soul. He took these things because he needed to be both God and man in order to save us from our sins. Well, Jesus Christ was both truly God and truly man at the same time. That is why Paul wrote those words, Great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifest in the flesh. Oh, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, John says he was made flesh. And this shows that this is a being who had a previous existence. He did not simply come into being at the time of his birth, but he had an existence beforehand, but he was made flesh at the incarnation. He took to himself the form of a human being. Oh, doesn't that show the great condescension of God that he or the condescension of Christ, I should say, that he who is God became man. He who is the creator of all things became the creation. He who is holy, he who is just, he who is righteous in every way dwelt amongst sinners like we. Well, that is the wonder of the incarnation that one who is infinitely pure and holy would so humble himself to take upon himself the form of a servant. He who made the law was made subject to the law. But when we look at this phrase in verse 14 that it says, the word was made flesh. That word flesh, it signifies that Christ did not simply look like a man, that it was not God just taking a form as it were. This was not just some mirage, but this implies that Christ took to himself our nature. Christ took as well as a body a reasonable soul, that Christ took to himself that nature which is common to each and every one of us. Oh, why is that important? Christ needed to be man in order to atone for sin. Christ needed to suffer 
in both body and soul to atone for sin. Christ suffered, yes, in body uh, on the cross and beforehand when those wounds were applied to his back, when the crown of thorns was applied to his head. But did you ever think that Christ suffered in his soul as well? Read of how when he was in Gethsemane, that he was in great anguish of soul. He was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Oh, there you see the great anguish and the pain that the Lord felt within his soul. Thinking there of the great terror that awaited him upon the cross. Thinking of the infinite wrath of God that would be poured upon him for our sins. Oh yes, Christ suffered in the full nature, both body and soul. And we see that even in the book of Hebrews, if you turn to it, Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read much about the person and work of Jesus Christ as our great high priest in this book. And we read something about this manifestation of Christ in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. For in Hebrews 2, verse 16 and 17, the apostle Paul says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. See, it behoved him. In other words, it was fitted for him, or it was suited to him to take upon himself our nature. Why? So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. See, it was necessary for Christ to be manifest in the flesh. In order, as Paul says there in verse 17, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is why Christ was manifest in the flesh. To appease God's wrath at your sin. To turn away the wrath of God that is our due. And John in his gospel account, he says that this is a reality, this is a truth. This is something that you can take for gospel as we would say. Because he testifies the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He says, oh, you don't need to doubt this. We have seen it with our own eyes. Jesus Christ, God, he was manifest in the flesh and he dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the original language, it means to dwell in a tent. And it has an allusion to that Old Testament tabernacle. And so this verse, it could be more literally read, that the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Well, that tabernacle, it was a temporary structure. It was erected for a period of time and then it was taken down and moved to a new location. Well, doesn't that remind us how Christ was here in his body on earth for only a short period of time? Only about 33 years. Then he ascended up into glory once more. 
But whenever we think of the fact that John says he tabernacled amongst us, there is a far deeper thought and view here in the apostle's mind. For the tabernacle was the place where God met with man to deal with sin. Christ is the one through whom we can meet with God. It is only through Christ that our sins can be dealt with. Christ is a, a, a type, or the tabernacle, sorry, is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who appeases God's wrath by his atoning sacrifice. Well, I wonder, have you experienced God's grace in that way in your life? Have you come to that time when you've realized that God's wrath, oh, it's been turned away from me? Or does it still rest upon you? John says elsewhere in his gospel, he that believeth not is condemned already. Oh, will you not believe on Christ tonight? But moving on, we see not just the manifestation of Christ, but we also see the majesty of Christ in this verse. For John describes Christ as being glorious or majestic. He says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. Now we must note at this point that Christ possesses an essential glory that belongs to him as one of the persons of the Trinity. Indeed, Paul in Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes Christ as being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Christ is one who is the brightness of the glory of God. He is one who reflects God's splendor, one in whom is God's splendor. But while here on earth, Christ's glory was to the most part hidden. It was mostly hidden from man's view. We read of that in one of the verses we made mention of already in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, where Paul says that Christ made himself of no reputation. Christ humbled himself. His glory was withheld from view just as the sun is shielded by the clouds. Oh, he did not lose his glory or else he would cease being God. But it was simply hidden from view to a large extent. Yet the wording that John uses in John 1 verse 14 makes it abundantly evident that while the glory of Christ was to a large degree hidden, it was not impossible to see. As John says, we beheld his glory. Now this doesn't just mean that they saw his glory or they looked at his glory, but it has the thought that they saw and they pondered or thought upon the glory of Christ. Indeed, the same word is used just a few pages back in Luke chapter 23 and verse 55, which speaks of the woman who came to the tomb of Christ after he had been laid in the tomb. And it says there, And the woman also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulchre, and how his body was laid. Has the idea that they looked at the sepulchre, they thought about this, 
They reasoned with themselves and they thought, well, we've seen where he is laid. We will return at another time. And this is the same sense which John uses this word in John 1 verse 14. He says, we not only saw the glory of Christ, we observed it, we thought about it, we pondered about it. Well, what was this glory? Well, this is a very clear reference to that event at the Mount of Transfiguration. That time when Christ's glory was evident to all who saw it. To those three disciples who were taken up that mountain, they saw Christ's countenance change and it glowed as radiant as the sun. Well, they saw the glory of Christ then. Christ's glory was also evident at his birth, at his baptism, at his resurrection, at his ascension. But it was also evident through many of his works and many of his characteristics. It was seen in his sinlessness and his holiness. He was pure and just and righteous and in him was no sin. And even Pilate, when he was in the judgment hall, he says, I find no fault in this man. Oh, no other man could that be said about. Indeed, in his song in Exodus 15, Moses, he says that the Lord is glorious in holiness. His glory is seen because he is a holy being. Oh, Christ's glory was also seen on earth because of the wisdom he possessed. Well, can't you think of how he was there as a 12-year-old child in the temple? And the scribes and the priests, they were amazed at this child that was conversing with them. Can't you think of how the officers answered, never man spake like this man. Oh, it all pointed to one fact that John says here in verse 14, as the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No one else could have such a glory as this. This is not just a mere man, but this is indeed the Son of God, and it is evidence because of His glory. No one else could be like this. No one else could possess these characteristics. No one else could do these works. No one else could be like this. It's as if it's the only begotten Son of the Father. That term is used five times by John. It speaks of something known as the eternal sonship of Christ. We made mention of that already. How Christ is an eternal being. And this phrase is used to show that he has been he is and he always will be the Son of God. And this is used by John to say, well, this glory could only belong to one who is the eternal Son of God. Well, what a Savior we serve today, one who is all-glorious, one who is full of majesty, one who is full of all things and is worthy of our praise. Well, we see not just the manifestation of Christ and the majesty of Christ in this text, but we also see the ministry of Christ in this text. For in the final part of this verse, John goes on to describe how Christ was revealed to man in his ministry. For he says, it is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Oh, here is what epitomized the work and the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is that he was full of grace and truth. Well, Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 19, that it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All power, all glory, all majesty, all grace, all truth. And John focuses upon those last two, grace and truth, because those are fundamental to all that Christ did upon this world. Well, his ministry was based upon his grace and truth. There is a progressive order in this verse. And we mentioned that this morning, how order is important to see in God's word. But notice here that he mentions grace, or sorry, he mentions glory, and then grace, and then truth. See, the glory of God terrifies us. The grace of God, it invites us. And the truth of God, it awakens us. And therefore, in the ministry of Christ, he comes down and he invites men and women to come unto him. And through his truth, he awakens us to our need of him. What is grace? Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God to those who deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. The word of God says that all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. We rightly desire to be cast into the blackness of darkness forever. But Jesus Christ is full of grace. That is wonderful to think upon. The Son of God is the embodiment of the grace of God. He is full of all of the blessings of grace. All of justification, all of adoption, all of sanctification, all of those graces are found through Jesus Christ. All that you need for salvation is found in Him. Salvation is not found in any church, not found in any man, not found in any organization. It is found in Christ alone. He is gracious. Though we deserve the wrath of God, Christ is one who is full of grace and mercy. Or you might think to yourself, well, it's impossible for me to be saved. I've done far too much wrong in my life. I've done far too many heinous and terrible sins. Ah, but Christ is full, full of grace. Grace that can meet your every need. Grace that can cover all your sin. Well, didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 5, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Oh, why? Because Christ is full of grace. His grace can never be diminished. It can never run out. But he has grace to cover all your sins. Oh, the hymn writer, he said it well when he said, Of God's grace, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame, oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. I wonder if you tasted of God's grace. Have you experienced that salvation that is to be found in Christ? Have you discovered that all your sins can be forgiven and forgotten if you only come to him in faith? But Christ's ministry was also full of truth. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know, in this day that we're living in, so many say, well, I have my truth, and I want to set my truth out there in the world. Oh, what a lie. There's only truth or falsehood. There can't be my truth and your truth. There's only one truth. And Jesus Christ is the truth. What is his truth? It is that if you come to him in repentance and faith, he will in no wise cast you out. You can depend upon him. You can rely upon Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. If only you come to him. Oh, here is one who is sufficient for all of your needs. One who is sufficient for your salvation. Oh, will you not come to Christ tonight? Because he has been manifested in the flesh, died upon the cross, and displayed that he is full of grace and truth. Oh, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance unto life. Will you not seek the Lord tonight to save you from your sins? He is willing. He is able. Will you not come to him tonight? May the Lord bless these words to us. Let's bow in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before Thee and we do thank Thee and praise Thee for such a wonderful Savior as Jesus, our Lord. We do thank Thee for one who is full of grace and truth, one who is mighty to save, one who came down from the realms of glory to save wretched sinners such as we. Oh Lord, we do thank Thee for all that we have in Christ we thank Thee for all that we are in Christ. We thank Thee for all that Thou doest for us. Oh Lord, we pray that Thou would help us to understand even day, day by day more and more about Jesus. Oh Lord, we ask now that Thou would part us with Thy fear, with Thy favor, and with Thy blessing. Take us to our homes in safety, we pray. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen.